Hi, I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. And uh, this man doesn't need too much introduction. And I don't even need to ask him any questions because he could go on for as long as he wants about any topic uh, that we will discuss. Mr. Andy Roddick, welcome to Holding Court. And uh, I've been waiting a long time to get you on. It's great to finally have you. Captain, it's good to talk to you. All you had to do was ask me. <laughs> well, busy schedules. You know, I got three kids. You got a couple of younger ones, so that uh, takes up a little bit of time. Uh, first things first, though, is what – and this is how – I've conducted many of these podcasts with 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 ex you know great champions like yourself, is to talk uh, to me a little bit about your start in tennis. I mean, I know obviously about your brother who was a great junior player and college player, so it was sort of in the family a bit. But talk to me and to the listeners a little bit about how Andy Roddick got started in tennis. What are your first memories? Oh, kind of. I mean, you know, I I think you have a brother who played tennis too. Um, but it, it, you know, if you're kind of around something enough, you don't know that like that, that one moment where you picked it up, but, um, I had an older brother who was always playing. And so, you know, I don't know if it started on a, a backboard, a casual tennis center, or, uh, you know, all of a sudden I had a lesson in time somewhere with, I, I think my first guy was Steve Jones and, and that in Austin, Texas. So, um, I don't remember the first time. I just remember it kind of being, uh, in orbit from as long as I can remember. And so, you know, when, when, when you're younger, you think your older brothers are, are the coolest um, and you kind of gravitate to what, what they're into. And um, when my mom was kind of, you know, driving around all day from this practice to that practice, uh, kind of you, you pick up on, on, on what's going on around you. So it, it, it kind of happened somehow, some way that. Yeah, I mean, I remember the same thing. In fact, I was doing an uh, interview for a documentary that they're doing on that, that brother, the older brother of mine. I have two brothers. So, so do you, by the way. Um, yeah. and, and I remember, you know, they actually interviewed me at the club where we grew up and, and where, where, I used, where I learned how to play hitting against the wall. Um, so, so, yeah, and I wanted to do the same thing that you did, whatever my brothers did. So if that meant baseball, it was baseball. It just happened that we were a little bit better at tennis. And obviously you were into other sports. There's a you know, fun story about you and Marty Fish playing, playing basketball together at Boca Prep when you guys were kids. Um, but, but tennis, why do you think you gravitated to tennis? I mean, for me and, and for us, it was I think we were just better at tennis than the other sports. We were decent at the other sports. But as you started to be competitive and play junior tennis, what was – the thing that made you want to stick with that, with that individual sport? Um, probably not, not just similar. I mean, you, you know, kids, uh, not too different than adults that you, you like to do what you're good at. Um, but, you know, I, I, my, my parents also kind of, they thought, uh, they thought team sports and individual sports uh, both taught li- different lessons, um, none more important, but all uh, of which maybe have value in different ways. Um, you know, the of being for life, then that you always have to have um, 
So, yeah, I remember playing soccer. And at nine years old, you, you, you know, you were young, but you were a lot of tennis on winning tournaments in, in the city that are 16-month tournaments. I'm going, okay, well, yeah, this is fun. I like this. Yeah, and obviously you get you get you get good at it. And uh, w- your first memories, Andy, of playing junior tennis, because obviously, I mean, we we know about uh, you know the, the 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 journey that that is, and the perils that go along with junior tennis, and uh, uh, traveling around or playing the local, you know, whatever you need to do to get your ranking up, and, and that kind of pressure. But what was that like for you? And, and obviously having your older brother probably helped because you were, like you said, you were around it. But what, what, were, you, what were you most of your memories about a playing competitive junior tennis? Honestly, I just remember the fun, like, around the tournament. Uh, you know, it was like, you know, I, I was always kind of the younger kid playing up in, in divisions. And so, um, you know, even just hotel tag and, like, having this kind of general infrastructure – of, uh, from a social aspect, but from kids that all around like the state. At that time, it was it was Texas. Uh, that was cool to me. Um, you know, kind of obviously dealing with a ranking system for the first time, where you know there was there, there was an actual goal, and um, you know, kind of each progression. Then you go to state tournaments, and then it grow. And each progression maybe is a little less innocent. You know, the, the parents are maybe a little more serious, and then you know the the, the, the consequences are maybe a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so as you grow, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, on a trip by yourself, you know, staying at a Salvation Army in, in, in Hong Kong trying to pick up junior tennis points. Uh, you know, so it, it's just crazy how it seems like that's a long time, but in, in reality that's, you know, a six or seven year run where life is completely different and you're playing kind of a snowball open and often then all of a sudden you're sleeping on a cot somewhere. Uh, you know, in, in a world that you don't know. So it, it, uh, it, it, it goes pretty quick. So I tell, I tell this story, and I'm probably wrong about it. I mean, I tell quite a few of your stories, some of which I can't repeat even on a podcast. But um, the, 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 one of the ones I love, especially now that I've gotten into actual teaching kids, which uh, even my years with the USTA, you know, that was more political and more administrative. So I wasn't maybe on the court as much as I would have liked to be. But now having wor- working here at our academy in New York, I'm actually on the court with a lot of kids, which has been a lot of fun working with coaches and actually being on the court with kids. So I find, Andy, that teaching the serve is maybe the most difficult thing. So I tell the, your story of how, you know, your serve became this unbelievable weapon. And, and, and it happened sort of on a fluke, right? When you were, you were pissed off that you were having trouble with your serve. Yeah. And then you found this motion. How old were you at, exactly? And when did that, how did that take place? I was probably 15, and it wasn't even just pissed off about my server. It was kind of pissed off about my general tennis ability. Um, but I was playing with Marty, and, you know, at that time, he had kind of he, – he had a lot of momentum, and he had gone from where we were probably pretty similar players, um, and then all of a sudden he made a move and was one of the best juniors in the world, and I, I wasn't quite that. Um, and so there's there probably a healthy jealousy in play, and – he was doing what he did most days then and just was kind of tuning me up a little bit in practice. His talent was very apparent. It, it wasn't something like I, I felt like I was on par with. And um, so I just kind of reared back, hit up two, and just, you know, hit the ball as hard as I could. Um, it's part of the first iteration of, of, of the motion that, that people might know now. Um, but it went in, 
and then I did it again the next one, and it went in, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the talent spot what didn't, didn't seem like it was as far. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. And and so you you kind of went to that like half motion or just a straight up motion just because you're just trying to find a way to get more pop. I, I honestly I think it's frustration. Mm. And I, I I thank God because had I missed that those first couple, I don't know that I would have stuck with it. But it <laughs> went in and it's a pop to it. Right. It was it was it, it was simple. Um, it was something that I could repeat over and over. Um, you know, I certainly got tied on the court. It, it rarely happened around the serve. Um, you know, so being able to kind of, and, 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 and as you know, and as a teacher, the biggest thing I see, a lot of people that are so obsessed with, with technical aspects. And for me, you, you certainly want to adjust technique and you want to make it as good as it can get. But, you know, there, there are people who hit a really ugly ball but can repeat it over and over and over. And there are some people who play really pretty and have perfect technique, but there's breakdown of some sort mm. um, when pressure enters. So that might not be the way to go about it, even though it looks great. Um, and so with my serve, obviously it's weird looking, um, but, uh, but I, can, I can repeat it. Well, one of the great things you said to me when we were just starting out is uh, I was the Davis Cup captain and you were – our stalwart for so many years was you said, uh, whatever you do, captain, never say a word to me about my serve. You remember that? <laughs> you said you could say anything. I, uh, you, you always like to test me if I was paying attention, you know, like, did you see whether, well, you know, if this guy missed that backhand up the line, I could go there. But you, I remember very clearly you said, whatever you do, don't say a freaking word to me about my serve. I said, got it. I got it, Andy. Okay. No problem. Yeah, I get I get that story back to me from a lot of people that, that that coached me. It was it was you know what it was. It was like it was a thing that I felt like I had kind of complete control over. Even on my off days, it was still uh, pretty serviceable. I like I knew the feelings of my serve, but they were like they didn't really make much sense when you tried to articulate them. Um, so if we're talking about direction of serve, or if we're talking about that, that's fine, but. Let's never get into the technical aspect of my serve. Just, I mean, it's, it's a few things um, about my tennis game that I felt I, I uh, 100% knew more about than whoever was trying to analyze it. All right, so let's look just um, at you, you know, your career and his, you know, amazing career, top 10 for nine straight years, which I know you're very proud of because uh, you know you were so consistent and you, your work ethic was was phenomenal. Obviously, you win the major at the U.S. Open, but when you look back. 
um, now that you've been retired for a few years and you started your own businesses and doing things outside of tennis, what, what, what matches, what are you most proud of when you look back now that you've got, had some distance between your career and what you were able to accomplish? Um, you know, wins come and go. Um, and, you know, you, you can look back and trophies are cool. And um, I like the memories. Um, I, I like to think that even if, um, and I certainly had a, 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 a I'm sure you can attest to this, uh, I, I had a personality that was, uh, I think you knew what you were going to get. I was consistent, but I wasn't always easy. Um, but even with people who I may or may not have had disagreements with, maybe there's arguments on court, um, you know, people that even I might not have gotten along with, I still feel like the base level of respect for the way that I went about it. Um, and so that, that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, uh, the matches, uh, gosh, I mean, I, I obviously think of, uh, of our Davis Cup uh, ties. That's a huge deal to me. It's, it's a little heartbreaking for me to see kind of where it, where it is mm. uh, currently. Um, maybe even more heartbreaking if I try to project forward to see where it's going. Um, you know, so, so that's certainly disappointing. Um, playing in all the places that you dream of. Um, you know, I, I, I played 40 some odd times, um, on Arthur Ashe Stadium court a lot at night, um, kind of took the mantle of, of, of playing those night matches and, um, the Wimbledon finals and, and, and that Wimbledon final, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're, they're all, they all kind of run together and it's just this amazing life that seems so far away now. Um, but, uh, you know, it's certainly, uh, I know I retired young, but I, part of me is is very happy that I did that because I look back so fondly. Um, I was always excited to get up and go to work. And uh, I know uh, a very small uh, portion of people are able to say that about a, a career or a former career. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, it, and, and I remember that <clears throat> as vividly as yesterday when you sort of announced during that U.S. Open it was going to be your last one. You had a, you had a great final match with Del Pocho, who I know you respected a lot. It was a great, not only a great yeah. player, but a great person. Um, so to go out the way you did. But I think some of us were, we were a little surprised because we, I think we knew that you could play longer if you wanted to. Maybe you weren't going to be at the very, very top, but you certainly were going to be right, you know, in the mix for a number of, of, of years to come. But it, it, you always were very true to yourself, I think. And you felt like, as you just sort of intimated there, that the, the, the desire, maybe you felt it waning a little bit and, and, and that you thought that was the time to do it. So you don't have any regrets, obviously, about making the, because you see some of your, I mean, mo- most of your contemporaries are done. Hewitt, the Saffins, the Ferrero, who you beat in the U.S. Open final. Um, but obviously you still got Roger there, but he's a freak of nature. We know that. Um, but most of the guys you played against also retired, but it seems like you really, really went out on your own terms. Yeah, I, in, in, it was some combination of all that. I knew that I, I knew that I always wanted to retire at the U.S. Open. So at that point, it was like, do I want to go through another year? Um, my body was starting to struggle, um, not so much with the playing, but with the training, which is what I felt that I had to do to compete with the guys who were frankly just better than I was. You know, I was trying to get better than them on a, on a given day and try to catch lightning in a bottle and, and make a run and win that felt like uh, more and more of a distant possibility um, with the way that I needed to, to go about things. Um, it's just been feeling I was work for the first time. Um, you know, I, I won two out of my last four events on tour, so I knew I could play a little, but mm. I, 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 want to, I want to play a lot. And I, I've been a 
five sets going through her uh, over the course of two weeks. Um, when that felt like something I was hoping for as opposed to something that I actually could happen, um, for me, that was it. Well, I, I have to I have to tell this one little. I mean, we have a lot of stories, and we could go on for forever about them. But I, I because when I talk to ki- especially to kids now, and even to parents of young kids who are pretty good, but you know, you know, they're not going to be a pro, and so you want to keep it in perspective for them. I say, you know, it's 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 pretty easy to not easy, but it it, it many players try their ass off when they are they're winning, right? Many players, even one that's close and they think they could win, they try their ass off. But there's very few players that I've, I've come across over the years, and you're one of them, that tries their absolute ass off when they know that they're going to lose. And so that brings me, and there weren't that many times when you knew you were going to lose a match, but when you played Nadal in Davis Cup, and this wasn't the, not the first time when you actually could have won the match, <laughs> but when you played him in Madrid in the semifinals, we were the U.S. against Spain, and you were playing your ass off, and you had no shot. I mean, because this was Nadal at his absolute greatest on clay, and you were two sets down, and you were down an early break in the third, and you were still, you know, doing everything you could to win a point. You came over and you said, Captain, what do I do? And it was sort of like, you know, we kind of looked at each other. And, and, and what I respected about you and still do so much was that I, you knew that you were going to lose, but you were going to put 100% into it still. At that point, and wh- where do you think that quality came from? Because that's some—that's not—that's not something that even some of the all-time greats don't have. That. Yeah, I don't know. I—I I think I might just be very simple. Um, I remember that. I remember right before he went out, um, <laughs> there was a well, woke up in the morning. I think it was drizzling or rain. I don't know. And we finished warm-ups, and all of a sudden, there's like a closed circuit feed into our locker room. And someone up with a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and on that court, <laughs> shoveling, right. shoveling more clay onto the court. Right. I uh, someone to kick me in the testicles that day. So uh, <laughs> I'm watching that. I'm watching that from the locker room. The, the, the most I yelled, kind of went out there and took my video. I was like, Captain, you took that wheelbarrow away. Yeah, um, got to got to do something about that extra clay. Yeah. Yeah, so, so we're, we're, I remember being in the locker room, um, and uh, there's like this live feed uh, that we get, you know, where you can kind of see people hitting, it's kind of grainy, and uh, they were out there with a wheelbarrow that was full of <laughs> clay, which, which I, I, I certainly didn't, didn't need at that moment in time. Right. And I remember yelling, get out there, tell them to put that wheelbarrow away, it's illegal, I don't I, you know, I, I got an uphill battle as it is, but, you know, as we fast forward uh, later that afternoon and um, me, uh, the surprise of no one being down two sets um, to Ross on clay. And, you know, he, he mentioned just kind of uh, getting credit for effort. Um, that was always a weird thing for me. Um, you know, I'm not sure where it comes from. I, maybe it's just simple. Um, my, my dad was a farmer in Wisconsin, had a pretty tough up childhood and kind of grinded and, and, and asked a lot of questions and kind of figured um, life out on, on, on some scale. But mm. uh, I always tell people, like, effort is a choice. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things in, in sports and life that, that aren't choices. You know, things can happen mm-hmm. to you, things, you know, good and bad, but effort was always kind of a, like a conscious choice. Um, 
you know, so that was always one of those uh, non-negotiables. And it, it seems simple enough um, in theory. So uh, in my mind, it, it should just kind of be simple in practice. It might not always work. Um, it's certainly frustrating. Um, but, you know, what's the option? What's the other option? It's like not trying. That, that, didn't, that didn't seem very good. Yeah, no, and then that was never, never an option that uh, I saw you – uh, employ with uh, your attitude, and as I said, your work ethic was was second to none. So you had the opportunity, Andy, to play against you know the greatest players of all time in in their prime, and in and in you in their prime, you as in your prime as well. Obviously, you played Roger many times in, in huge major finals, couple Wimbledon's, uh, U.S. Open. You played Djokovic when he was you know coming up as you did with Nadal. But you talk about. I mean, I'm not going to ask you who was the greatest. I mean, they're all great, and obviously on different surfaces, it's a different different story. But just the challenges that each of them faced, and what you know, the excitement level for you. Obviously, you had Murray as well, who was an all time great. Who you you had some great wins yeah. against him. But um, as far as those three guys who have now distanced themselves from everyone, what was your mindset and what was your take on each of them? Well, it, it's weird, like the greatest of all time, like that, that conversation will play out. Um, you know, we're, we're in a rush to kind of uh, be able to say that, you know, any name with confidence. Um, you know, the way I see it is that Djokovic ties any of those guys um, with slams. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the other metric he's firmly in control of, um, whether it's thousands, head-to-head, weeks number one. Um, you know, so if he ties, it's actually tough to make a statistical argument against him. Then it just becomes who you like and whose style you like. And, right. um, you know, but the numbers are the only thing that are guaranteed. So we'll try to base it off that. But as far as specific challenges, like it just becomes matchups, right? Like I obviously had a horrendous record against Roger just because everything I did well kind of played into his pocket. Um, and he had that little chip down to my back end, which he knew that I couldn't really hit top spin on. Um, you know, as, as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card where I was forced to make a bad decision. I was either coming in on something that was average um, or I was kind of restarting a point, neither of which was was, uh, was a good option uh, <laughs> for me. Um, you know, and, and it was able to – he served so well. Um, you know, was able to hold – was able to mix it up. Um, I was an okay returner if people had very clear patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, then I could firm it up. I could, you know, get myself into the point on the second serve. Roger to this day, like, I, if you said, oh, okay, it, you know, it's 30-40, where is he going and what's he doing? I, I still don't know. Um, you know, so it was just hard. And, and then he could walk my serve back and get neutral off my first serve probably um, as well as anyone. And, and so it was just the matchup was hard. Uh, the adjustments I had to make were hard. So I had to play – a game that I wasn't comfortable with and executed to perfection to really get the results that, that I wanted um, against Roger. And when we did play and when I was playing with best, it was always in a final, which means he was kind of in, uh, mm. in full flight as well. Um, you know, with, with Rafa, it was obviously, it, it was probably the most service dependent rivalry. Um, you know, if we played on something really fast and I, I remember playing him in Dubai uh, one time, and, you know, if I was making my first serve, I was normally getting a ball that I could come out of my shoes on on the second serve. Um, and I was going to get looks at his second serve. And so it was probably the simplest game plan, not because of what he was doing. It's just that he did everything so well that it kind of narrowed the choices down to very few that of which you had to execute well. But 
you, you, you got to look at them um, a, a little bit more often. Obviously, on a slow surface, it was like, uh, it, it was, you know, you mentioned the match in 08 in, in Davis Cup in the semis, and you'd go in trying to lie to yourself about what you might be able to do when, you know, I always think of Mr. T when he just says it's going to be painful. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, and so, you know, that was more surface dependent. Fast surface, I felt like I could get in the mix and, and uh, you know, kind of played on my terms a little bit. Slow service, it was, it was, it was, uh, you know, a little bit of water torture where, you know, it, it might not feel bad all the time, but you're going to end up on the wrong side of it. And, you know, Novak is, is, is intriguing to me because he's kind of flipped a lot of the narrative uh, from his early career. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we see what he is now. And, you know, I, I remember, what, I look back at my notes, I'm like, okay, let's, let's get the chip down to his forehand. Let's extend rally. Mm. Imagine me saying that to him. Wow. Let's extend rally. Let's, let's, let's keep him out in the heat of the day. Let's try to, you know, make him breathe heavy. Um, you know, let's see if we can kind of get in it to where, you know, he kind of fades away um, from the competition a little bit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you could get him to do that. And now it's like, you don't even recognize that guy uh, anymore with, with what he's been able to do um, from a physical perspective. I remember watching that, that Aussie Open where he played those back-to-back slide setters. I'm going, this, isn't, this doesn't even match with what, what uh, kind of I knew. And I, I had some success against Novak, um, you know, in, in my career, you know, more than the other two guys. But mm-hmm. I will say this. I remember... I think we played like an exhibition and, and it was in South Korea. It was in Seoul. I think it was 2010. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one of those things where you get off the plane, you're using it as like a nice little soft landing. You get a sweat, you get a payday, and then you get onto the tournament that you're going to play there. And so we had arrived and I'm kind of dragging and, you know, it's jet lag. And, you know, you know, Dougie, who you know well, who are the sure. best trainer, I was like, okay, let's, 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 let's get some scores. Let's get a stretch. You know, the goal of the first day is, you know, to get a casual hit and get a sweat and, you know, not get hurt off the plane. Right. And so we get there like an hour before, which, you know, was, was a lot, um, you know, and Novak was out on the court doing all these weird, you know, things, that, movements I had never seen before. This guy stretching him, going through his paces. I'm like, well, I thought I was, I thought I was the professional here and I looked like a, like a chump compared to what this guy's doing and how committed he is. That was very eye-opening to me because mm. I, I, you know, I wasn't I, I wasn't privy to kind of his day-to-day operation. Mm-hmm. You just show up, play him, and you know, you kind of see what you see. I'm going, oh, okay. Well, this is that that doesn't really align with with what I see on court sometimes. And he came out and drilled me in like an hour. I'm going, oh, that was different. <laughs> um, and then the last the last two matches I played against him, it was it was it was a different level of tennis. There was nowhere to hurt him. He wasn't giving you the the tight double fault at Deuce and the mm-hmm. flag forehand at 30-40 potentially, and then a look at him box with like a look of panic on his face. Those things were gone. And I'm going, oh, no, this is a different – this is kind of a different thing. Right. Um, anyway, 11, I think, was the first year he finished number one. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of got out of the game before he could reverse our head-to-head, and that certainly would have been reversed based on our last few matches. But I, I do remember 2012 at the Olympics, I uh, I'd been hurt early in the year, so I wasn't seated. Um, he, I think he had won Wimbledon, but we were supposed to play second round. And that was a big match on paper on grass. I had played well on grass in the past, and um, I was kind of pumped. I won Atlanta uh, going into that event, so I was like, okay, I kind of found some form. I played well. I hit the ball cleanly, 
um, walked off the court feeling really good about my game. I lost two and two. That was the first time. <laughs> wow. That was the first time. I was, that was the first time I was like, this might be a different game than you're used to playing, and I don't know that lightning in a bottle will get it done for you at this level. So two and two, he beat you on grass. On grass, and right. I actually I didn't serve I didn't serve as well as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But as far as hitting the ball, I, I walked off. I felt really good, and there was just nowhere to go. There was nowhere to beat him. High, low, short, long, mm. through, those were all bad options. And so that was, uh, that was confusing at best. It's, it's amazing to hear you talk about it because it's, uh, you realized what the – I mean, we, you always knew it about Nadal. I mean, he's 17, 18, he's dominating already on clay, uh, starting to dominate. Yeah. Roger is Roger just with his, his talent and his ability. But it's like the, the, the Djokovic has had the most amazing transformation. Because, like you said, he was yes. he was a little soft. I'm not soft is too strong a word, but he was suspect mentally and physically early on, and now, um, you know, you, when you watch him, you're right. I mean, especially when he you talk about Roger getting to the finals of Wimbledon. Of course, that's when he plays his best, and and now it's Novak. You know, just like this year's Australian Open, it's like okay, now he's locked in. You know, the last two three matches. I mean, there's just as he said, no nowhere to go. Um, well, we're going to see how it plays out for those guys the next, uh, you know, the next couple of years. You think Rogers got one more shot left in him? I mean, one more shot at Wimbledon. What do you think? I mean, he's got a shot always. Uh, you know, for, probably for the first time in, in my life, I know I kind of laugh about it. I remember in 2013, all the questions about Roger, and he's had a back injury. He's like, this is it. I'm like, no, it's just health. If he gets healthy, he's going to be the same guy. Like, he's, mm-hmm. nothing's changed the fact that he's, you know, so Toby gets rehab, but it's going to be really hard now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, unlike the times before when he's been hurt, he wasn't the best player in the game before he left for this last year. Right. Um, you know, he was kind of at the point where he was hoping to catch, you know, two weeks of hot, and then, you know, he almost pulled it out against Novak at Wimbledon. Um, I think that's probably going to be the first match in his career where he actually lived through some start issues for, mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, you know, he's so amazing at, at kind of water off the duck's ass, on with the next one, great attitude. I feel like that was probably the first one mm-hmm. that stuck with him. You know, so the rest of us feel like we're miserable for, miserable for weeks at a time afterwards. Um, so, yeah, you add that in and it's like, okay, two knee surgeries, is, is that going to make it better? Is that going to change the scenario for the better for him? And I, I, just, I don't see how it does. I will never be surprised by anything Roger Federer does in a tennis court. Um but, yeah, I mean, I, I, sure, I don't know that uh, I would bet on it at this point. Right. All right, so Andy Roddick, post-tennis, uh, I mean, you've done a lot of cool things, including being on a sport, an all-sport show, which is something I always wanted to do, and you jumped in and you did an awesome job on Fox for, uh, for as long as that show lasted. You did your own radio show as well with a good buddy of yours for a while. Obviously, you're great on, on, on your tennis stuff with Tennis Channel, BBC you've worked for as well. And I know you, you, your foundation, which you started years ago, the Andy Roddick Foundation. And by the way, please go to that online and help out uh, Andy's great foundation down in Texas, which helps so many kids, particularly with everything that's happened in the country and in Texas specifically in the last year. So I know your crew's done a, a hell of a job helping people. But what's been for you, obviously, you got a young family, you got a great wife, um, for you, post-tennis, what's been the most satisfying? I know you've got some business ventures and interests that you're heavily involved in, too. What's, what's been the most you know, joyful for you post-career in tennis? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously the foundation is, is kind of a tentpole of, of all of it. And, you know, to, to, to see where we're at the point now where we serve, you know, tens of thousands of kids a day in Central Texas is uh, not something that um, I, I thought would have been a possibility um, when it was just, a, you know, kind of a simple idea and, and mixed with uh, a little bit of uh, good intent. Um but yeah, I mean, the business side has been fascinating because it's, it's, it's a weird thing. And I, I think, uh, you know, a, a fault of a lot of ours is to think you're, you're an expert at one thing, therefore you're an expert at everything. And mm. um, kind of learning uh, that that is not the truth, but it's been fun trying to um, gain new information, going into different things, um, you know, our, from, from, from real estate to uh, retail to, uh, you know, bourbon to healthcare to tech. It's, it's just been such an enlightening journey to, to kind of uh, tag along with some amazing you know, founders and entrepreneurs and kind of see, you know, when you see a brand grow from, uh, from something small and then all of a sudden it, you know, either goes public or, or uh, at least has a, a sizable market share. And it, it's all just been a, a ton of fun. And unlike the, uh, the sport that we love, um, it, it largely doesn't have to control your geography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. that's been um, that's probably been uh, the, the best part of it is just you know you react to someone else's schedule for such a long time, um, and now to be able to uh, you know where your road trips are two days at a time as opposed to two months at a time, um, that's been something that has been very calming um, in my life. It's, it's given me the chance to make uh, very selfish decisions, but in a good way. Um, kind of prioritize time with family. Uh, as opposed to trying to kind of fit it in, um, in, in you know, kind of outside of uh, our, the, our tennis uh, circus. Um, so it, 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 it's been it's been a blast. I, I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, tennis has, has uh, it's given me everything I have, and it's controlled nothing of what I do mm. um, post career. So um, it, it's been uh, it's been great. And I know I'm I'm kind of the weird one who you know doesn't really go to many events, and you know. Probably the only positive, uh, personally, from this whole pandemic is that there was proof of concept where they let me sit in front of a computer or an iPad and, and talk tennis on air. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been that's been amazing for me. It's been uh, you know it's like falling in love all over again. So that's been uh, that's been great. Um, but uh, you know, post career has definitely looked uh, a lot different than uh, than uh, you know the decade and a half that preceded it. Yeah, well, you know what? You're not even 40 yet, so you've already done uh, in, uh, amazing stuff since you left tennis. And uh, I know that you know from a personal standpoint, Andy. Every day I walk into our tennis academy, and I got a poster up of. Um, us holding that Davis Cup, it was certainly the greatest um, moment for me in my professional life. And uh, the the one person who I have to thank more than anyone, and of course, the Bryan brothers and Marty Fish and James Blake and Robbie Ginepri and all the people that played, uh, played their part. But nobody played the part like you did. You were the, you were the true leader. Um, in many ways, I, I look to you oftentimes for guidance, you know, on some of the other players and and we, we, we butted heads at different times, which was, which was all good because, you know, you were straightforward and I always respected that. And I just want to say here, thank you for all you did for me, um, not only from a professional standpoint, but personally as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we, shared, uh, we shared great memories. I think when we started, I think we were both probably, you know, you were a new captain. Um, it always seemed like you knew what you were doing. I don't know if it felt that way. <laughs> Definitely not. I feel like yeah. I knew it. I, I definitely didn't didn't feel like I knew what 
what I was doing as a player. And, um, you know, I, 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 as all great relationships, you know, they kind of go on. Um, you know, I was a kid when we started and you took a chance on me and there was a certain dynamic. And then um, away from David's stuff, I became a little bit more established where it was a partnership. And, um, you know, we certainly always both cared and we didn't, you know, agree all the time, which you're not supposed to. But I, I, I hope that you would think that there was always an underlying. And I know at the end of the day, uh, and I did call you, I, you know, I called you in a panic before the 08 US Open. I was like, listen, my coaching situation is not going to work. Can you kind of drop everything and just pay attention to me for the next two weeks? And you did that. Um, and I hope, uh, you know, you would know that it would go the other way as well. And, um, you know, so it, it was, it, the, the memories are just phenomenal. Even, you know, the little things inside the locker room and the jokes and, and everything that came out of it, those, those were certainly, uh, some of the, uh, the best years. And, you know, unfortunately for that competition that we love, I don't know that they were, uh, those memories are going to be recreated in locker rooms across the world uh, much longer. Yeah, it doesn't look good for Davis Cup in the, in the future, but it looks good for Andy Roddick in the future, and uh, you stay in touch. And uh, like you said, you, you always had the back of your, your teammates. You were their leader, and, and they knew that. And, uh, and even when we were setting this up, I remember I texted you. Or we were, I think we were talking about some other political stuff about the tennis world, which we'll get into another time. And uh, you called me right away because you thought, oh, something's up. What's up with Patrick? He sent me a quick text. And, uh, you know, you immediately thought maybe something was wrong. So that, that tells me a lot about what you think about me. I appreciate it. Good luck with everything you're doing. And hopefully we will see each other as uh, hopefully we're nearing the end of this uh, crazy year we've all had. Yeah, thanks, Captain. Now, give my love to your girl, please. All right, you too. Andy Roddick here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.